on this episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. Oini Kaido, what did the guy in my mouth say to you? <laughs> Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. I'm your host, Austin, for this evening, coming to you live, directly from the hole, and I promise that is not as gross as it sounds. I'm joined by two wonderful co-hosts this evening. First I have Tobias. Shocking! And I also have Tori. In the kitchen making gyoza. Tonight on this episode, we are going to be talking about probably one of our collective favorite anime from last year 2020 Doro Hidoro which came out on Netflix about a year or so ago maybe about nine months ago and it was a really fun show that we all enjoyed very very much so we're excited to talk about it this evening but before that we wanted to talk about a little bit of brief current event news that came to us courtesy of the internet uh earlier today today is um, march 27th of 2021 and today uh the fine folks over at our home flagship convention animazement announced that yet again for the second year in a row animazement will not be happening um, unfortunately we are still in the midst of the covid19 pandemic as of right now Thankfully, things are a lot better now than they were a year ago or even six months ago. But unfortunately, we are not yet in a situation as a state or as a country where we can start having conventions again, which is a real bummer. But, um, you know, it kind of is what it is. You know, we we have to do these things to make sure people stay safe and healthy. But um, so how did how did you guys react to the the news that came out today because i was a little bit bummed even though i wasn't surprised necessarily i'll say uh kind of going in i i kind of expected it i think we all did really you know we're just not there as a country yet to really go back to in-person events you know we're still still holding a little hope for year-end events things like awa but even then i think we're still you know a little on edge about those so it, it's sad but I'm glad they made the responsible decision. I'm glad that they were able to do that. Um, I know that a lot of commissions have had issues with their contracts and their venues. So, you know, I'm, I'm not privy to whatever is happening between Adamazement and uh, the Raleigh Convention Center. But regardless, I, I am glad to see them do that. Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all, honestly. Um, it is for the best, I think, and I'm hoping that other conventions that are happening towards the end of the year are going to follow suit. Um, I'm trying to stay positive, but I don't think large in-person events like anime conventions are worthwhile right now, just because everything's still going on. So we will see what happens with that. But um, it's hard not to be kind of bummed, because... You know, we've been going to that convention for a very long time, and I've not missed one since 2010, so, um, 
kind of is what it is along with what you guys said so but hopefully things by next year will be good <laughs> i think it's interesting yeah on our past few episodes if you look at the ones we put out the past year to kind of see the evolution of this you know this like you mentioned this is the second year in a row that az's been can be canceled if you go back and listen to our, our sonic episode where this is kind of at the beginning of all of this and even uh, like in b stars the last kotatsu corner we did it's, uh, it's kind of interesting to see where we were then and where we are now. Things are, are definitely better. Uh, vaccine rollout is much, much better than anyone predicted. So I'm glad to see that. But uh, it, it is kind of interesting to see the history of this pandemic through our podcast the past year. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up because, you know, typically we generally shy away from talking about like news items on the podcast. But I think just, you know, chronicling the experience of, you know, uh the podcast and of you know convention life during during covid is you know I, I think worthwhile and um you know again i i definitely echo you guys again and say i'm i'm pretty bummed about az but i'm kind of glad that at least we are in a state in uh, north carolina where like that decision is probably a lot easier for them to make than in certain other states where the legal restrictions are a lot more like loose and events wouldn't be able to make decisions like this so freely without like massive legal or financial implications. Um, and I think just going back to, you know, a few weeks ago, whenever Momocon announced that they would not be happening this year, Momocon and Animazement happen on the same weekend. And under normal times, that is kind of, that's kind of stressful for us, for our group specifically, because we've got about half of us that really enjoy going to Animazement, our flagship home con, and half of us that have started going to Momocon and have really enjoyed that experience. So it's, so I guess my point is that both Momocon and Animazement are like very relevant to us as third impact anime. And I think just knowing that Momocon made that call was probably the last nail in the coffin of Animazement eventually making that call. Because if yeah, they're on the same sure. weekend and in the same country, obviously, then their prob- their decisions are going to be, you know, pretty pretty similar to one another. So it was kind of just a waiting game. And I will say that as of this recording, they have not announced any plans to do any sort of virtual programming, but uh, hopefully they will allow us to be involved if they decide to do that, because uh, we like working with the AZ folks. They're a nice bunch of people, and they've always treated us really nicely, and um, mm-hmm. we appreciate that. And I don't know, at least speaking for myself, I'd be I'd be willing to do some virtual panels for them. I've... I, ha- I know, Tobias, you did one for virtual Momocon last year, and you thought it was fine, right? Yeah, it, uh, it worked out pretty well. Uh, for that one, The uh, they wanted us to submit recordings of it rather than do it you know, live. I think uh, the first virtual con, Anime Lockdown, that was all uh, on the cuff with all of the technical issues that you would expect from doing that. But uh, in the in the time since, all the virtual events have required recording, so it was it was interesting figuring out how to rewire uh, OBS, that you know popular streaming software, to basically run the PowerPoint of it. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was an interesting experience to do with its own set of headaches, and you know you have the issue of a lot of panels having copyrighted material that is easy to get around when you're at an in person setting. But it is, of course, impossible to get around when these are on YouTube and Twitch 
which have been clamping down on DMCA uh, requests and, and that kind of thing. So it, it's, it's, you know, there's just so much space that we could do these, the panels that we do on, on the internet online, but there's a lot of issues with that, that you know, are coming to the fore. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where it's not really, I, I don't like it when people equate virtual panels with in-person panels because it's kind of like comparing film and film and books you know mm-hmm. it's like they are by their definition different entities they're not intended intended to be replacements they're intended to be supplements you know it's doing the best with what we have while we you know doing the best with what we have while we have to make adjustments mm-hmm. so i think that there are some necessary changes that have to be made to make panels work in the virtual environment but i think they're still worth doing even if they're not like true to your vision per se for sure i mean the one the one major benefit to this new uh paradigm is just the fact that we can see material and see these lectures and panels uh by people we never really get to because of the limitations of meatspace We've been able Mm -hmm. to see a couple of Mike Tool panels, and uh, Dave Merrill's done a couple of his Anime Hills. Uh, Our friend uh, Bokusachi has done a couple of these events now. I think he just wrapped up one, I think, a week or two ago for virtual NakaCon. Yeah, NakaCon, yep. Yeah, so it's been been cool to see that, you know, because you're not limited. We've talked before several times about Discotech and their, their events. You know, those Discotech Day panels have been very popular at the larger events. And I've always kind of had to follow them on Twitter as they happened in real time. But to actually be able to attend and see these things in front of me has been fairly exciting. So I will give virtual events that. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, just like generally, what about what what do you think should carry over from the virtual convention experience back into like normal convention life? I guess, uh, Tori, what, what do you think about that? I think the carrying over of, like, the virtual documentation of, like, uploading panels and things like that, because, you know, the conundrum of somebody putting on a panel at the same time as you that you're interested in, or two other people doing a panel at the same time you're interested in, um, I might not get to see it physically over the weekend, but I can go home Sunday night and watch it if I really wanted to, so having that space to upload panels or um concerts or anything like that i think would be a lot of fun if they kept going with that after everything was back to normal yeah exactly and and on top of recording just having like streams of these events going on during the convention as well Mm -hmm. would be very easy to do i've I've seen a large lot of the larger conventions already do this with their main events they they usually just try to stream it on twitch or youtube uh simultaneously and i can kind of get my why they might not want to do that since considering these are kind of paid events and that's that's free material but there's very little reason to you know all things considered and there's not a whole lot i mean i'm I'm kind of spitballing here but it doesn't seem like a whole lot of work you know in 2021 with all sort of the streaming setups we have you know there's equipment needed but it's not like it's it's that impossible to kind of set up these streams for these event spaces so yeah put it uh put it in the ticket price charge me an extra five dollars to have virtual content i mean (laughs) not a huge deal well i will say that one 
one element about that specifically from like my work experience is that we we have that we've had that conversation a couple times whenever it comes to stuff that I do for my job and basically like what we do for like let's say we have a paid a paid virtual event that you have to register for essentially what we do is that we we record and we save all of that content that we create out of the workshop but we don't post it out to the public immediately. We have like a delay of a few months so that mm-hmm. like it is eventually available to the public, but the people that paid the money to go and to be there don't feel like they wasted their money because like they look at the event a few days later and see, oh my gosh, all this stuff I paid for is just available for free. What gives? Mm-hmm. So we want to, we definitely want to avoid that situation and definitely give people you know what they paid for but we do eventually make that stuff available so maybe if conventions wanted to do something like that i could definitely definitely see that working so i completely obviously forgot, uh, i completely forgot about this but actually a month or two ago i did attend a virtual convention uh, it was a uh, uplink a virtual event put on by the long island uh, retro convention which is mostly like retro themed video games and they had a, a like it was through a browser but it was a whole different site you know, where you had virtual rooms, like virtual expo halls and side panel rooms and whatnot. So they had streams of these uh, people presenting their PowerPoint presentations and and whatnot. They had talks of these people with their webcams discussing certain, you know, franchises and whatnot. But it was all behind a paid barrier. So when you bought the ticket, you had access to this, this software suite that you could access. And I think that would be another interesting way to do it. Um, I was hoping that Uplink would upload these these uh, panels in the aftermath. They don't seem to have done that. But well, with a convention name like that, they better. You would think. Uh, but one <laughs> cool thing they did was that even if you missed the event, all of the panels were recorded and viewable through the weekend. So even though I it was limited by time, you know, I could only go into one room at a time because I only have one set of eyes. I could go back and watch the other ones at a later date through the weekend, and that was a really cool. You know, thing and i think uh, yeah. i told basil this and he looked into it a bit because you know he's been involved with convention running and whatnot and he looked into a little more and, and kind of figured the cost would be a little bit prohibitive for some of the smaller events uh so it would have to be something like animation something like anime weekend atlanta to really justify it but you know why not there's you know, you have people like us that will travel to go to these cons but then you've got people that wish they could people across the country that would think about animazement because you have you know masao maruyama show up you have uh shinichiro watanabe show up big big names but some people just can't travel for whatever reason so if you could use that alternatively and attend virtually from the comfort of your own home but still sell tickets why not yeah i mean Mm -hmm. that's a great point i'm i'm pretty sure that organizations like um game developers conference they do that i think maybe probably um and you know so many more organizations just do that now by default it's like they've already learned these skills out of necessity it would be a shame to see them like go to waste once you know in-person conventions come back because i think that there's a lot of merit in the lessons that we've learned from having to move online uh for covid and i think both of you guys you know pretty much outlined exactly what those are pretty well so yeah, I hope we just we take those lessons um, into the future and hopefully integrate them into 
the conventions that uh, come down the pipe once uh, COVID is uh, effectively over. Um, but we, this is definitely a topic that we're going to come back to in future episodes. But I think we're going to take a quick break, unless anybody else has anything they'd like to add. Nope. I mean, to that okay. point, I think another lesson we can learn is, please wear a mask if you're sick. You know, yes. they, 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 they've been doing this in Asian countries for a long time now. We just haven't seen them outside of, you know, cosplay people wearing the, you know, the fashion mask and whatnot. But like, let's let's destigmatize using mask if you're sick, you know. Hey, I mean, you said it yourself. I mean, there's already somewhat of a, of a uh, convention cultural precedent for mask wearing because, you know, I've seen those like kawaii, like cute little mouth masks for years at this point. Everybody just go get you one of those and just wear it. <laughs> yeah. So like that would be great. Um, we kind of talked earlier in uh, our Discord about you know like um, crowding and overcrowding. Uh, I I would hope that this would maybe be the final nail in the coffin for these conventions like Anime Expo in Los Angeles that is just way too crowded, way too crowded. So I think maybe we could start seeing uh, that issue resolved in certain ways. Man, that I would have be great. a feeling. I have a feeling they're still gonna pack people in there, but make them sign a waiver. That's just like if you catch COVID, that's on you, not us. Yeah, Cosmo, get off the damn desk. <laughs> <laughs> and with that word from Tobias's cat, we're gonna take a quick break. And whenever we come back, we're gonna be talking about Dora Hidoro. talking about Dora Hidoro on this episode again one of our mutually favorite anime that came out last year but before we get into talking about the anime in earnest I did want to go through some production notes about the creation of this mangas and eventually anime so the series Dora Hidoro started in the manga magazine monthly Iki in November of 2000 so about 21 years ago at this point, Dora Hidoro is old enough to drink almost. And it ran Damn. until 2014 when the magazine ceased publication. And after that, uh, Dora Hidoro was picked up again in March of 2015 and a different uh, manga magazine called Hibana. But then it moved again to Monthly Shonen Sunday in 2017 whenever that manga magazine ended. So this seems to this this particular manga seems to be a magazine killer, which I don't I don't know what that says about it, but that's that's kind of funny to see. Uh, Dora Hidoro finally ended in 2018, going on for 18 whole years. It sounds like a really long time. 
with 167 chapters and published under 23 full Tankabon volumes. And in the United States, it is published in English by Viz Media. So a little bit about the author. I think uh, Wait, some... I want to jut in there with... Uh... Sure. And I think with the Viz, they have it under their like signature line, right? They do. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's like say... it's a the uh, same i think the same series that um golden comma we is published on here i'm looking at my bookshelf right now but they're like taller volumes than your standard taco bond mm-hmm. they seem to be like a glossy cover uh it's a little more uh, premium than your typical typical manga volumes mm-hmm. yeah i think they largely do that for things that are like seinen seinen works mm-hmm. um and you know thankfully in the states we get like a very much a larger print like size manga than they do in japan which i think is pretty pretty neat i mean that's definitely reflected in the price because in japan manga is like very cheap generally speaking but in the states it's probably like double if not triple the value in um in japan but it is it does tend to be very nice and viz puts out good stuff So a little bit about the author. Her name is Q Hayashida, which I'm assuming is not her birth name. She started drawing manga in high school and later went to art school, but she but she generally wasn't the best student. Uh, her mom was a really big fan of art generally, so she was always very, very critical of her work, often pushing her a lot harder to get better, and maybe not always in the best way, but you know, according to Hayashida, it did prove to her that the best way to get better at art was by showing it to people and getting their feedback, even though her mom was kind of a jerk about it. Uh, Growing up, she was a really big fan of the works by Katsuhiro Otomo, such as Akira, and also Junji Ito and Kazuo Umez's catalog, which definitely play into her art style. I just want to butt in and say that it is very obvious when you look at the way she inks, um, because Umez and Ito are both heavy inkers, and everything is very, like, black on black on black, and uh, I think that carried over very well in her work, and I didn't know that. I, um found that very interesting to read that little tidbit so as the resident junji ito expert (laughs) yeah i mean i i definitely see the full influence of both otomo and ito specifically because like they both are again that that heavy ink style and like it's kind of it's kind of like a weird combination of both because she she has that extreme attention to detail and grime that uh, ito has but has that sort of like rounded kind of cutesy character designs that Otomo has. Mm-hmm. Like like all of um all of Otomo's characters are just kind of round. Like mm-hmm. if you look at uh the Akira manga, like Kaneda looks a little round, like he's got a like a, a plump face, and so does Tetsuo and everybody, and in a way, uh Dora Hidoero is kind of similar to that. Like everybody looks soft, you know, they they don't really look like it's not like Fist of the North Star here. So, so softness in a way that contrasts with uh, like the heavy ink style that we talked about. There's a lot of that um, really dark, rough lines that almost look like um, the Attack on Titan manga in a bit. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I agree that yeah, Kaishida's got a style, you know, a, a character style that leads through with that. Something that um, the style is both kind of captured in that way, but also not in the anime, which I found kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that in a little bit. Um, 
But generally speaking, she tends to be very freeform in her approach to manga, and she uses a lot of mixed media styles for her cover pages, and she admits that she's not very consistent in her art style and kind of just draws however she feels like it, which kind of explains why Dora Hidoro evolves in his visual style over the course of the manga. But I think that that's very interesting, the way that she said that and is not apologetic about it. Like, I found all of this in an interview uh, that was translated, and I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to it, and you can read it for yourself. But I thought that I thought that was really kind of awesome of her to say, like, hey, you know, my art style is not always consistent. And I kind of own that because I always want to be evolving like as an artist. And I'm like, you, you know what? You do you. That's awesome. I'd like I to hear that. I think anywhere going on 18 years, you're going to see an evolution of the style, regardless whether the artist admits to it or not. Yeah, definitely true. Look at a Rocky. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, she's also a huge fan of Dynasty Warriors, and she actually said that she broke one of her PS2s from playing it so hard, which is also pretty hardcore. But her debut is it? Did it put her manga on hiatus? uh no i think that she has a much more healthy relationship with dynasty warriors than um what's his name does with love life no idol master Ah, i'm getting everything wrong it's okay they're all idols they're all the same mira mr berserk what is what is mr berserk's name kentaro mira oh thank you the fourth time i've said it (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I just can't listen. My ears are broken. I, I thought you were making a joke for the uh, Hunter 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 mangaka. Where it's like a, uh, oh, same thing. Oh no. Yeah. His problem is His he's is always health. sick. I mean, yeah. bless that man. He needs to just retire, and people need to just let him. Let Miss Takeuchi needs to get him in gear. Yeah. yeah, she should just knock him out and force him to sleep all the time. That'd be good seen, for him. I've seen some of those pictures of him like sitting down in his messy room with his oh, Super God. Nintendo, and it's like, <laughs> how do you live like that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that was before he got married to That was. There's a really famous picture of his room before and after um, she came into his life, and it's really quite funny. <laughs> oh, it's much messier now. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Hayashida's debut as a manga artist was in January of 2000 whenever she drew an adaptation of Atlas's Machin X game for the Dreamcast. And that series is like a cousin to the Shin Megami Tensei series. Tori, I know you're a longtime Persona fan. Had you ever heard of Machin X? I've I never have heard of that. No idea what that is, and I'm just waiting for someone to come in and go, you fake gamer girl. But uh, yeah. no, I, I have never heard of Machin before. I was never really super into like shin megami proper i was always a persona person but um if anybody's the fake gamer girl it's tobias and we all know it's true absolutely yeah Um, i don't think i don't think i've never heard of this either i don't think it's a it must not have come over here i don't think it did now that i'm googling it it looks nope you are wrong it was localized in 2000 yeah okay well the dreamcast have like five games and this must have been one of them (laughs) that's true (laughs) poor one landed on the dreamcast So moving over to discussing the anime, the anime was produced by Studio Mappa, which is one of my personal favorite anime studios and probably the personal favorite of a lot of people. It debuted on Japanese television on January 12th of 2020 and ran through March 29th of 2020. And for us over in the United States, it dropped all at once on Netflix, released from the prison in May of 2020 with a brand new Netflix produced English dub. 
So a little bit about Studio Mappa. They were founded in 2011 by anime legend and perpetual studio founder Masao Maruyama. They've that studio has since worked on a number of very critically acclaimed and fan favorite series like Yuri on Ice, Banana Fish, Zombieland Saga, which is a personal favorite, Sarazanmai, and In This Corner of the World. Right now, they are adapting the currently airing season of Attack on Titan, and they will soon, in very much a Dorihidoro vein, they will soon be adapting the Chainsaw Man manga. Yes! <laughs> yes, which should be very cool. And if the style of Dora Hidoro is any indication of what Chainsaw Man will be like, because they do have a very similar visual aesthetic, it's going to be pretty darn cool. They're also about to work on a new project from Lashawn Thomas called Yasuke. I had not heard for I had not heard of this until I did some research for this episode. Um, apparently, this series is going to be about the life of the actual historical figure Yasuke, who was a African man who served as a bodyguard of Oda Nobunaga in medieval Japan. I remember reading an article about that and did not know that that was a thing, like historically. So it'll be really interesting to do some research into that before watching it to see how um, well they actually adapt or how truthfully they adapt the story historically to an anime. Mm -hmm. And I will confess that I have not yet seen Cannon Busters, but I did see that one short that LaShawn Thomas did a while back, Children of Eden, I believe. Tori, you and I saw that in theaters for that Crunchyroll anime movie night. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm- Is I'm, that a LaShawn Thomas thing? Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, he made that. Okay. It was just kind of like a one-off thing. I was hoping it would turn into a series, but it didn't, unfortunately. Mm -mm. Um, I guess he just got, um, uh, I guess he just got plugged in with uh, the Cannon Busters project and decided to focus on that instead. But um, yeah, Lashawn Thomas is a really interesting uh, anime creator because he's like a guy from the U.S. who like moved to Japan, became an awesome animator, started working in anime, directing his own stuff. So. He's a really interesting guy and a very cool creator, and I'm always excited to see that he keeps getting work, and he really shows off, you know, the the global industry that anime is becoming, so that's pretty awesome that he's going to be, you know, telling a, such an interesting story like that. I'm, I'm very, very curious to, to watch that whenever it comes out. I think it's supposed yeah. to come out this year. The director of this series is Yuichiro Hayashi. He also directed the 2014 Garo the Animation he also directed Kakegururi, which is another Netflix thing, and is currently directing the Attack on Titan final season. He is also a key animator and has storyboard credits on productions such as Redline, Hunter x Hunter, and the Psychopaths movie. Series composition was done by Hiroshi Seko, who did the script and series composition on Attack on Titan, Banana Fish, Decadence, Jujutsu Kaisen, Ooh. and Mob Psycho 100. And he obviously has a talent for adapting manga into anime because that is a large portion of what his career has been yeah. thus far. Yep. The character designs were adapted by Tomohiro Kishi, who also did character designs of Attack on Titan Final Season, Garo Vanishing Line, and has animation director credits on Banana Fish, Dirarara, and Princess Jellyfish. That is definitely a show I need to actually finish one of these days. Yes, I can see... I can see it now that you mentioned Attack on Titan final season, just from the screen grabs I've been seeing from that, which thankfully I've avoided spoilers because I really want to finish it. But um, I can see it now that you point it out. I hear that show is very Titanic. Get out. Get out. 
The art director for Doro Hidoro is specifically notable because he is the famous Shinji Kimura, who previously did background art on things such as Akira, Angel's Egg, Dirty Pair, Urusei Yatsura, Beautiful Dreamer. He also did art direction on Blood Blockade Battlefront, Project Eiko, Tekon Kincrete, and you can definitely tell that this guy worked on this show because it has a lot of things in common with his previous credits and this guy has definitely done the work to make some of the more visually interesting anime over the course of the decades and he's had a very long career as you can tell he's very good at those intricate and grimy details of worlds and you can definitely see that come through in the way that the whole and sorcerer's world in Hidoro are really um conveyed with his particular artistic style and i think it is really awesome that you know hayashida herself was such a big i think it's really interesting that hayashida herself who was so inspired by akira and then they would bring in someone like kimura to come in and make her manga you know into anime i think that's a pretty cool you know you know completion of the circle if you will exactly you've got i think i think we'd all agree that the whole itself is a character in dorohedoro and just mm-hmm. the, the setting they've they've created. So to see the similarities with this over industrialized, you know, city compared to the the cyberpunk, uh, very cluttered aesthetic of like Akira, uh, even like uh, Dirty Pear and Tekon Concrete, you have these cities, these futuristic almost cities that are just full of details. And the whole certainly has details in spades. So we can certainly see that here. Yeah, absolutely. I think he was a perfect fit to come in to do art direction on this series. Absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'll say, but speaking uh, of that, for for, for oh, everything else we've, we've talked about so far, you know, it's very easy to think of studios as just you know a name, Studio Mappa. But we do see here people that have followed Maruyama for a long time, with the director working on Redline. And we've got uh, you know, Banana Fish here is also, we see some CG stuff like uh, the Garo, the animation, and even the, the more recent like Decadence and Mob Psycho. So you can definitely see a through line from something like Madhouse all the way to what we've currently got here with MAPPA. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. It's like, it's it can be very easy for us as anime fans to just sort of associate like studios with creating things but at the end of the day the people that make up studios are specific people with like specific artistic talents so Mm -hmm. i think it's important to also you know not necessarily focus completely on the name of the studio but also the name of the person so and to be able to recognize those those people between projects because that's how you can really you know follow and appreciate the art that you really really like Exactly. And another thing we see here is uh, people working on more recent CG things. So it's very easy for, for longtime fans to just hate CG. You know, I, I love you, Bill, but you know, it's here. The future is here <laughs> and we are, we are, we are, we're right here. Um, every time I read interviews from really any animator, you know, they're all kind of under the same impression that CG is the future and you're certainly going to have like the Sakaga heads that you know are there for the traditional style. But year after year, we see more and more animators and animation studios moving toward full CG productions. And we certainly see that here with Dora Hedoro. Uh, I think that you know the style, a lot of people were disappointed because Hayashida has a very unique uh, heavy ink style that we talked about, very gritty. And the, 
you know, there's certainly some issues with the, the character design here and the way that it's animated. Uh, as someone who came to the series fresh with the anime, I didn't really care so much. But I can see why people might have a problem with the way it's done here. And uh, I was going to say, you know, we, we look at MAPPA going on to produce uh, Chainsaw Man, another uh, modern cult classic, per se. You know, a lot of the manga fans are talking a lot about Chainsaw Man and how his unique style. I kind of wonder if we're going to see the same issue or lack of issue with their production of this in a couple of years. Is, are they going to go for something a little more safe like Dora Hedoro? Or are they going to try to give it that extra charm that we perhaps don't see here? Well, I think it's one of those things that this style and this method of doing anime is like constantly evolving. So like Dora Hedoro would not look, you know, even though it does not look perfect and there are definitely some ways in which the CG is a little bit jarring, maybe mm-hmm. um, it looks better than it would have if it had come out in 2012 mm-hmm. or 2015 or even 2018 because the technology on this stuff changes so rapidly and it gets it's gotten so much better so quickly like i don't know like you, you called out bill but i feel like in a post lupon the third the first mm-hmm. world a post dragon quest your story world it's like, I think complaining <laughs> about CGI anime as a broad brush complaint is kind of falling on deaf ears whenever you think about the absolutely gorgeous things that are out there. Like, I don't think Dora Hidoro is on that level, but I don't know. CGI anime can do some amazing things these days. I think there's a, you know, there's, there's certainly, I think we can all agree. Uh, I think we can all agree that at least it's not done by Polygon Pictures. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. So you've got, uh, like, the people that did um, Move on the, the first. I'm seeing Mars Animation Planet. I swear there was a different name here. Uh, it wasn't Orange that did it, uh, as well as Dragon Quest. You know, there's certainly going to be the theatrical high production value stuff. But you know, a lot of the anime series, the TV series, is going to be something, uh, you know, under that budget. Not going to look quite to that degree. Sure. Yeah, but uh, we, sure. we do see a progression from what Polygon does, and thank God for that. Yes. Oh, gosh. And again, I think something that really adds to the generalized atmosphere and complements the art direction so perfectly is the music by the musical collective known as No Name. Mm-hmm. From what I gather, they're not really a band. They, they call themselves like some sort of... Like on their website, they say they're like a mixed media something or a multimedia project or something like that. Oh, but they did not only the openings and endings for the show, of which there are multiple endings and they are all absolutely wonderful songs, just absolute bops, all of them. But they also did the uh, the composition and the score for the show, which has some really amazing tracks in it like typically i'm not the type of person to listen to a lot of scores outside of the context of the thing in which they are scoring but i have found myself like just straight up listening to the dora hidoro soundtrack like independently of watching the show like it for some reason it's just resonated with me i think i just think the general texture of it is just so interesting and there's so many different things going on in different tracks like you've got some stuff that sounds like nine inch nails grunge stuff and then you've got stuff that sounds like 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 a french polka and it's just like all over the place and i love it it's just it just has a just this wonderful adds this wonderful atmosphere musically to the whole show 
yeah i i don't i'm not really the kind of person honestly in my old age to really care about opening any themes anymore for new shows i just they don't really interest me uh, i know i'm a bad anime fan because of that but horrible i've i've yeah. honestly listened to no name stuff like in the car the, the opening welcome to chaos i wasn't a big fan of it first but it's really grown on me it uh, grows on night, you uh, i think it's uh i think it's night surfing is that other uh banger that i really enjoyed and you mentioned the songs, but like the animation they've done. You mentioned there were like there's like five endings throughout this something like that. One this one season show, this one core show, and each of the the endings, the animations are are just so drastically different, and they're all fun. Uh, Night surfing itself has them kind of just walking in these like two frame goofy poses around the city. Uh, both uh, the antagonist and protagonist. Uh, there's one that's just like a send up to Doom and Castle Wolfenstein, yeah. which is just yes. like what? It's just so wild. Turning but everybody into mushrooms. <laughs> they're just so great. Uh, yeah, but I, I've listened to. I, I think I just have a playlist on YouTube of these songs, and yeah, just casual listen. I love it. When is the Dora Hidoro Doom clone coming to Nintendo Switch? I need a release date now. <laughs> I need, a, I need I need you to be able to run Doom on an anime. So that's most of the production out of the way, so I'll toss the ball over to Tori to give us a rundown on the cast. Who's in this gosh darn show? Uh, yes, hello. Um, so, I realized I forgot to put in Abisu and the other little wizard guy, Fujita, I think his name is. Um, yeah, Fujita. Sorry, I felt really bad, but uh, <laughs> the main contenders are there, and that's all that matters. <laughs> um, Nikaido, God bless her, um... Her English voice actress is Reba Burr. Uh, she was Catalea in Violet Evergarden. Uh, Legum in Beastars, which was the chicken who made the uh, <laughs> egg salad sandwiches and watched Legoshi eat them. <laughs> Legoshi's best friend without even knowing it. Yes. Um, she was Marie the Mink in Brand New Animal and Cynthia in The Great Pretender. Um, she's not a weasel. No, she's a mink. Um, Reina Kondo is her Japanese voice actress. She is a relative newcomer. Um, she voiced a few characters in Sword Art Online, but doesn't really have many credits to her name other than that. Uh, good old big boy Kaiman. His English voice actor is Alex Lee, who is Zenitsu in Demon Slayer. Uh, the main male protagonist in Astral Chain, which I still need to play that, but, um, and he's got a few other roles under his belt. I think he's a relative newcomer as well. And then um, the Japanese voice actor is Wataru Tagaki, um, longtime voice actor. He was Zangrief in Street Fighter. He was the dub voice of Dobby from Harry Potter and also Okayasu in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Um, the, uh, the absolute oldest 15-year-old <laughs> you could ever find. <laughs> uh, that brings me much joy to think about that. Um, anyway... 
knowing just just real quick we're definitely going to insert this into the podcast but alex lay posted a hilarious video to twitter a few months ago of him attempting to do kyman's voice as kermit the frog and it is the funniest thing ever it (laughs) threw me on my butt whenever i first heard it and every time i hear it it just makes me laugh so y'all are going to get to hear that (laughs) i don't really know what to do I don't really know how to do a Kermit. Let me try to mix the two voices. What did the guy what what did the guy in my mouth say to you? Then we have Noe, her English voice actress is Cher Millet, who is Makoto in Persona 5, Michu in Brand New Animal, Sailor Venus in, and Sailor and Sailor Venus in the new Sailor Moon dub. Um her Japanese voice actress is Yu Kobayashi, who was Sasha in Attack on Titan and Lucina from Fire Emblem. And then we have Sheen, my boy. Um, Sean Chiplock is his English voice actor, who is Subaru in ReZero, Rivali in Breath of the Wild, and Mishima in Persona 5. You can really tell that I wrote these um, credits because <laughs> it's all just Persona, Persona, Persona. <laughs> Very Tory biased. <laughs> um, in Japanese, he's voiced by Yoshimasa Hosoya, uh, who was Reiner in Attack on Titan, Agami in Brand New Animal, and Joe in Megalobox. Um, and then in, in, in English, is voiced by Keith Silverstein, who is a very prominent voice actor. He was Shido in Persona 5, Goheen in Beastars, Wolfrune in Smile Precure, and Hisoka in Hunter Hunter. So yes, you very much can tell I wrote these. And then now is this is he is he in so is Smile Precure a um is that a Glitter Force or is that a Precure proper? I meant to write Glitter Force and my fingers were working faster than my brain, so I wrote Smile Precure. But it's most definitely Glitter Force because Smile Precure proper was never (laughs) dubbed. It was Glitter Force. Oh, I see. Um. Anyway, thanks, Saban. Yeah. Seriously. And then um, in Japanese, he was voiced by Kenyu Hiro, Kenyu Horiuchi, who was Pain in Naruto and Raiden in Metal Gear. <laughs> uh, I'll say to my to my end that I, I generally listen to Japanese with English subtitles, but I took a gamble here with the dub, and I loved it. I don't even know if I could go back and watch it in Japanese. The um, dub was really good i will go ahead i'll let you finish your thought and i'll it's great i think the the characterizations are great kaiman is just a big old goofball and he really sells it uh it it does not i do not doubt that he would attempt to do a kermit the frog impression Uh, i can can see kaiman the character doing it not not alex here Uh, i think i think uh, nikaido's characterization was just perfect you know we we were kind of talking before the podcast but so many english um, like female voices tend to be very high pitched, very very young, uh, maybe a bit samey in some regards. It's just I, I don't think Ooh, it's don't the get thing. me on that soapbox. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's a knock against these actresses in particular. It's just for some reason they've kind of gone with this, this this type of voice, and maybe because the majority of anime now is high school characters. Maybe I don't know, but Nikaido has a. It's almost like I don't know, like a smoky, like husky, like undertone to her, to her act, her um, oh, what's the word, um, to her characterization here, and it's just mm-hmm. perfect. Like it's just, it's so, so good. I would extend that same commentary to Sharon Lay as Noe because, mm-hmm. yeah, at I least was... for me. Go ahead, Tori. 
I was just gonna say that I love how constantly they made Noe roll up like a dude, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, Every time she up, shows up, How's hey, going? what's up? What's going on, dude? Hey, bro. <laughs> and I love yeah, and, her and for I was gonna it. S- <laughs> yeah, and like it's so interesting just to see Jeremy Lay's range with a character like Noe because at least for me, the first time I became aware of Jeremy Lay was the fact that she played Asuna in the Sword Art Online dub, which is very much that sort of standard like again no 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 shade thrown on her or anything but that very standard you know anime anime girl voice young anime girl voice but like hearing her play noe which is you know very very husky very kind of brash but still like obviously a a feminine voice it's like it, it it just really it it shows that if you if you give actors an opportunity to like break out of their comfort zone they will probably surprise you and that's always a great thing to hear. There's just a sense of realism that I guess I'm not used to hearing in English voice acting. And mm-hmm. maybe that's kind of why I enjoyed it so much. Nikaido sounds like a, a tired restaurant owner. <laughs> you kind of like, <laughs> yeah. can't help but relate to her. Um, you know, even though like the, the character is drawn as, is, is unique and interesting. But the voice just added a new layer to that, which I loved. Yeah, I think um, probably Shin's performance was my second favorite because the the duality of it, like, there's that way he speaks that makes me feel like I should be scared of you, but then he pairs up with Noe, and then they're like absolute, utter stupid goofballs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's a great microcosm of the about the show just in general. I think you just you you hit the nail on the head about one of the greatly appealing things about Dora Hidoro generally, but we'll definitely get into that in a little bit. Um but Tobias, we've been talking about this show for quite a while at this point. Do you want to tell the audience what's what it do you want to tell the audience what the story is actually about to the best of your ability? Yeah, so in summary, what if you just dropped some acid and wrote a manga about what you experienced, basically? <laughs> <laughs> this just, and the thing I really love about this show is it's it's so weird. It, it The story, when you put it out in plot points, it makes sense, but the way it tells it is just so strange. Uh, so you mentioned the whole earlier and how it's kind of its own character. It's this very hyper-surreal industrial area. It, it may or may not be in an actual hole in the ground, but it, it it sits in contrast to the world of the sorcerers. So, yep, you've got this sort of modern urban fantasy thing. Uh, you know, this is the setting here. There's there are sorcerers that use magic and they experiment on people that live in this place called the hole. So the hole is full of these, uh, you know, these, these riffraff, these victims of this magic rather than the people that benefit from it. Uh are it's basically just the, the slums from midgar and final fantasy 7. exactly slums yeah slums is definitely the word i was looking for so the story opens with our two main characters kaiman and nikaido uh kaiman is just a dude whose head looks like a lizard's uh, mm-hmm. maybe kind of an alligator or crocodile kind of very lizard like and um he doesn't Croc- know what crocodiles yeah lizardile <laughs> yeah. i don't know <laughs> and he has no idea why he suffers from his amnesia he doesn't remember his life before he was found by nikaido uh nikaido she doesn't have any transformations that we know of she's just a normal uh you know a normal person uh she finds kaiman and becomes his best friend she takes care of him she feeds him uh food from her restaurant that she owns uh, but she also does have her own shady past that the series goes into. Uh, so she's not just some you know innocent person that stumbled into this. Uh, 
So Kaiman is trying to find the source of his transformation. Why is he? Why is he? Um, why is his head a lizard? And he does this by finding sorcerers. He bites their head, and as their face is in his gaping maw, <laughs> I, a human, a another human, a whole human man is inside of Kaiman, uh, a man with these same cross. Ta- like tattooed cross eyes pattern very spiky anime hair uh, this whole man is just in his his body and he tells the person you were you were not the one and uh, when he does so kaiman releases the the victim and asks him what did the man in my mouth t- tell you <laughs> and it is always uh yeah this this person who's shocked by this lizard man biting their face you know is, um well he told me i wasn't the one at which point kaiman he just murders them straight up cuts them down no, nothing about what you said was incorrect it just sounds like inconceivable nonsense exactly so and that's, that's... <laughs> i had to explain i was talking with one of my coworkers maybe last week and he was like hey so what anime have you been watching because he was looking for something to new to start and i had to sell him on this show mm-hmm. and i had the same exact like out of body experience when trying to like explain this to him and watching his face as I kept going on about like yeah so there's this man who's a lizard and he has a man inside of him and he eats people and then he kills them at the same time and like and he really likes gyoza and he really likes to eat dumplings and then there's like this weird cockroach man and I don't even know but you should watch it because it's really good yeah and like the the individual points, they don't they seem very fantastical, like hyper surreal. They don't make much sense. It it does on the second viewing when you you see how the system works, how the uh, the setting, how it works, how it revolves around itself with the magic and the smoke, and the mushrooms. Like it makes sense. Believe believe it. You just have to like let it happen to you, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, the cool thing about this is you've got the you've got the protagonist trying to solve the mystery of Kaiman, but you also have these antagonists, which are kind of like they're really just the second cast. They're not really the bad guys uh, when you get down to it. <clears throat> so, the sorcerers, the people that did this, um, they're kind of led by a guy named M, who also has this spiky Vegeta hair. Uh, but he's got like this fascination with mushrooms. He turns everything into mushrooms. That's his magic. Uh, he has his two cleaners, uh, Shin and Noi, kind of his right Which, hand. Which I um, will say, if you don't mind me cutting in really fast, a sorcerer whose power is turning things into mushrooms may sound stupid on paper, but in reality, it's horrifying. It's yeah. scary. <laughs> yeah, he straight up just turns people like really easily too. Uh, in the second episode, there's a couple of assassins that try to cut him down. And with the snap of his finger, he just turns them into a pile of mushrooms and without missing a beat, tells the chef to go cook them up. They're going to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got Shin and Noi, his right-hand men, uh, that just kind of, you know, they, they are his cleaners, as he, he, he calls them. And they are also as, as psychotic as you can imagine them being, uh, while also being a bunch of goofballs like everyone else in this, this show. And then you've got the the lackeys, the the lower rung uh, people, Fujita and Ebisu. Uh, the story starts with Fujita's uh, ex partner Masamura being killed by Kaiman, and uh, Ebisu is introduced pretty quickly. She's this uh, young girl who wears a skull mask around, and she also gets attacked by Kaiman. 
probably become a psychotic because of that. Uh, she has her face ripped off by the end of the first episode, which would mess anybody up. And Fujita and uh, ABC were very much the the clowns of the show. They're constantly running around. ABC's really just like wacky. Fujita's trying to to clean up her messes, you know. And, and I think it's just a really good a really good foil for maybe some of the more serious parts uh, of this cast. The way that the cast is structured in this show, you know, funny enough because they have such similar sounding names, but it kind of reminded me of the way that the character groups are constructed in Durarara, mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. like there are a bunch of small groups of characters sort of doing their own thing, but they end up converging at a lot of points yeah. and often like conflicting against one of one another because like kind of like you said, like Shin and Noi are not really contextualized as villains they're kind of Mm -hmm. contextualized as like main characters maybe slightly lower on the level than nikaido and kaiman but like we're not i don't think we're necessarily supposed to think of them as like antagonists like i think we're supposed to think of n as an antagonist for sure but uh noi and shin just kind of seem to be living their lives just like nikaido and kaiman do like they've got jobs to do they've they do things and sometimes those things are highly questionable like murder but you know it's not like kaiman is any better at times like he kills people too exactly i even think by the end uh and sort of comes around as his own character as well uh very early on i was he was very scary uh you just can quickly turn people into mushrooms but he does have his own his own background that's explored a little later and even by the end I didn't really see them as the bad guys exactly. Yeah, yes, Nikaido and N are at odds even by the end, but like you said, you can't really blame them exactly. So mm-hmm. I think the real villain is you know, <laughs> to get a little political. The real villain is the society, the sorcerer versus victim uh, schema that we've set up here. Uh, to be honest. But uh, just to kind of key off that again, I think so much of the charm of this series is just how weird everything is. It doesn't make sense the first time. You just watch it. And every episode, it's it's just it's put together so 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 I don't know, I don't want to say casual, but it's just there's so many of these little tangents that the series goes on. There's the episode where they go to a formal dinner. The uh, the, the, the the sorcerers do. They go to this parade. There's a whole like multi-episode. What was it like the Blue Moon or Blue Night parade? Uh, that's a big uh, like arc. And there's just so many of these tangents it goes on. It just it adds on to the story, but it feels like you know it feels like Dorhedor is going into Tangent Town. Like every episode. <laughs> Bill's and gonna it, hate it yeah uh but like it makes sense and watching it a second time it it completely makes sense all the pieces fall into place but you kind of have to go that going in that it's going to be very weird uh yeah at at, at its face value so i did want to ask tori because you probably have the most longevity with dora hidoro because Mm -hmm. you said you read the manga or at least a good portion of it a number of years ago is that right yeah when i was a teenager um it was one of those things that 
somebody I was following online was super into it and I thought they were cool. So I was like, oh, if I read this, I'll be cool too, right? Um, but <laughs> that is I, what the internet does to you. <laughs> um, I don't remember where I left off. I most definitely didn't catch up to what was actually, or maybe I did catch up to what was out at the time, but um, a lot of it is very faint. I don't remember much about it other than like the art sticking out specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember getting to like, at least where the anime is now. Yeah. Um, but I remember enjoying it very much. I just, I need to go back and actually, now that it's all completely done and licensed and everything like that, I need to actually go back and read it and finish it. I remember them being, um, some like, slightly questionable things that happened um with some of the characters um but you know back then i didn't have as much as of a critical eye for things as i feel like i do now but um i mean it was good what i remember of it (laughs) yeah so it didn't really it felt like whenever you approached it with watching the anime it felt like a new experience because you didn't really remember too much right um and that's why I'll be interested to see how I feel. Like I, I went back and reread like the first two volumes um, before we recorded um, a while back ago, and it it paces well and it it adapts well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it yeah. does. It, it basically suffers from the Jinji Ito syndrome, where like it loses all of its charm in the animated adaptation. Um, which I know that, like, you guys have talked about that a little bit, but, um, I think it's one of those things that I would have been happy whether it was animated or not. Like, I'm glad it was animated because it reminded me that, oh, I really liked this when I first engaged with it, but it's just unfortunate that, like, it loses all its charm, essentially. Like, you, you just can't carry that art style over into animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the anime, I don't know, I would hesitate to say that it loses all of its charm, but its charm changes, like, mm-hmm. it, That's it, fair. It's, its charm does not come through in necessarily, like, the character art or other, or anything, but I remember specifically, because I read those first two volumes recently as well, um, you remember the scene, this is very early, and I think on episode one or two, where Kaiman and Nikaido are at the nightclub? And they encounter that sorcerer there who Kaiman bites his head on. Bite, he bites his head the on. Ac- the acupuncturist. Thing, you know, yeah. yeah, the acupuncturist. That's right. And yes. then Kaiman has that whole joke of him molting. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like that scene in the manga is drawn almost totally without backgrounds. Like it's just the characters. Mm-hmm. But I think seeing that in animation where they had to actually do the full nightclub scene, I think that adds something to it that was not present in the manga. Mm-hmm. But to your point, Tori, I do think that there is a distinction between the anime and the manga. And this is a, I think, a very a kind of a rare instance where I think it is advisable that you probably check out both. Yes. And I think this also goes along with Tobias's point about getting something more out of it upon second viewing. Mm-hmm. If you read the manga and watch the anime, you can probably appreciate both of the different kinds of, or both of the different visual approaches to the story, or you can appreciate both of the different visual approaches to the production as well as get a 
deeper understanding of the story by revisiting it a second time and typically i'm not the type of person to really revisit things like this like if i watch the anime or read the manga typically one or the other is good enough for me but this is probably one of those rare situations where i will watch the whole anime and i will read the whole thing eventually because i get mm -hmm. different things out of it yeah yeah i think i think that's totally fair um you know there's some things you, like you just said, there's some things you get out of reading and there's some things you get out of watching. And I think this is one of the very few rare times where it's like, yeah, I'd advocate for both for sure. the summary of the series we talked about the production and the voice cast let's, let's dive into our feelings a little bit here so i've got a couple of points that stood out to me in watching this show that i think would be you know these these sort of thematic elements that uh, really shine through in, in doro hey doro uh the first being the amount of friendship we see in this grim hyper violent world uh, i thought it was very interesting that despite kaiman and ikaido being together the entire time uh, they're never really in a romantic relationship. And you know, the series, like, hint, like this doesn't really hint exactly toward it, but I could definitely see them having a deeper relationship, but I could also see them not. And I think the series plays that very well. I completely agree. I think you mm -hmm. can tell just by what you see in the show, just their general chemistry, that they have, like so much affection for one another like they really really care about and love each other very very much and that doesn't have to be romantic like so far as we have seen at least where it is in the anime it's it's not crossed over that line into being some sort of like crushy romance i mean it could and it would make sense but it doesn't seem like they're going in that direction um but i i could definitely see that these are two people that absolutely care about each other 100% and would do anything for the other. I would like to see it stay platonic, I think, in all honesty. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's a very, I don't know, I think that's a very important thing that I think media needs to convey more just because a man and a woman are friends doesn't always mean that it has to be a romantic relationship as the like culmination point. Mm -hmm. Um now, I feel like I'd rather see Noe and Shin end up that way, but that's just because of, like, they have more of a past together. Like, they, they have a different past to me than Kaiman and Nikaido. They have a different past Nikadu. to me than Nikaido and Kaiman do. <laughs> um, but, I yeah, I would just like to see them stay friends. Like you guys said, they obviously care about each other very much, and... Um, I don't necessarily think that that relationship needs to be bogged down with any romantic feelings. Like it's okay to platonically love your friends. You're allowed to do that. That doesn't make it, that doesn't make things weird or whatever. Like 
tell people that, you know? Love the lizard men in your life. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed it just because of how uncliche it was. Uh, so so mm-hmm. much in anime, you see these sort of jokes toward that and, and so much of this you know, romantic comedy stuff, the cast who use that as a trope. But uh, there's a point in, I think, episode two, when Kaiman's boss, the doctor, is like, oh, it must be great to have a girl make you lunch every day. And it, Kaiman doesn't get embarrassed. He doesn't blush. He doesn't get weird about it. He just like, yeah, Nikita's not my woman. We're just friends. And he just plays it off. And that's the entire series goes like that. And I think that's really mm-hmm. great. You know, it's very, again, it's obvious that they, they, they care for each other, like you said. It's just not in a gushy, romantic way. And I, I really, really appreciated that. And there's there's a great note that I think you put you put in the discussion notes about how the the pair the pair relationships between the different um like guy girl pairings that are in the show like Kaiman Nikaido Noi and Shin and um Ebisu and Fujita are like very very different relationships like all three of them are very different dynamics. Yep. Yeah. And I think that that provides a lot of good context and a lot of different ways that we're supposed to understand the way that this world works by perceiving it through the lenses of very different kinds of people. Exactly. And uh, Tori, you mentioned earlier about Shin and Noi. We get the little that one backstory episode where we see how they came together and to see this sort of co-worker relationship that's come from a shared past, to see them look out for one another because of the stuff that went down you know, in their in their past, I think is interesting. Uh, you know, as well. You know, we have of course Kaiman and Nikaido, they're they're kind of there to solve this mystery together. And even, mm-hmm. you know, Nikaido's own past, you know, kinda of getting into spoiler territory there. But uh Nikaido's got a lot of her own stuff that unravels near the end. Uh, so they're there for that reason. And like you mentioned, Fujita and Ebisu, they're 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 the clowns. They're kind of there, they're yes. goofy. We kind of see them come together near the end. It's it's obvious that they do have each other's backs, but it does seem to be very antagonistic uh, very early on with the Oh, Ebisu uh, hates him. They're, they're the uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just that that gag in like episode one or two where like um, Fujita is given that uh, outfit to dress <laughs> poor oh, yeah. Ebisu in, and he's like, "I do not know how this works," and he just can't get it to fit right. <laughs> and she's just like so out of it because she just had her face ripped off. It's yeah. a it's a very good gag. There's yeah. a there's a part of me that you know enjoys putting together like IKEA furniture that like wants to see how the dress was going to look in reality you know i kind of like i see the pieces and i'm like ah just put it together come on man all the instructions it's it's a funny gag for sure and even later when they have to dress up for the parade they all get to choose their outfits and she's got like you know (laughs) it's like really skimpy dress and these just big old bazongas just hanging out (laughs) that then fall out yeah, and they're just they're just all flopping around the place until they deflate, and it's. You know, we, we, I, th- I think we're all on the same a, page about like, um, like you know, etchy kind of stuff in anime. But the way they did it here is just is comedic in a way that it was actually actually funny. Generally speaking, um, Ebisu gets a lot of good, uh, you know, outfit gags because also who could forget her dressed as the shark in the baseball episode? Yes. Uh, and just absolutely going insane with being able to wear uh, the shark costume, which um, and this was something I was thinking of while I was watching it. It's just like 
Ebisu, the way that she comes across in the story is that she is very much the comic relief character. She is very much the character in the story that is screaming and yelling and being over the top at everything, as was a pretty common trope in some anime and manga at the time in which this was written in the early 2000s. And I was kind of surprised i mean maybe you guys maybe you guys thought differently but i was surprised at how much she didn't get on my nerves like i kind of expected to be more annoyed by oh, Abby no, Sue, annoyed me. but it, huh i said oh no she annoyed me <laughs> well fair enough and you could speak to that for sure but i i kind of expected her to like i expected to actively hate Abby Sue as a character but i kind of didn't because she she can be balanced out at times and isn't always that sort of manic trope. At least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That that character archetype just kind of grinds my gears in general. And like, I don't know. Oh, don't about... get me wrong. It, it, grinds, <laughs> it grinds my gears too, for sure. Yeah, but I, I think it got better as it got towards the end, like, when stuff was starting to hit the fan and um, you were finding more about her powers and stuff like that, I think it mm-hmm. kind of ro- reined itself in a little bit. But um, I don't know. There was just a lot of times where I was like, man, they're kind of undercutting this uh, scene by writing in this stupid Ebisu and Fujita joke. But, like, <laughs> okay, I guess. It could be worse. <laughs> they, they definitely feel like they're treated as the less less honorable protagonists like very much the clowns like tobias Mm -hmm. said but i mean they have some good moments they have some not so good moments i think uh, one of the standout gags for fujita is the scene in the ova where he's standing in line to get (laughs) a new mask from the devils (laughs) and because you know in in the way that this world works is that all of the sorcerers have masks that they wear and it's my understanding that the masks are you know partially a a status symbol and they're also partially a way for them to you know use their magic powers better and he his mask is by far like the least interesting the least cool out of all of them and he desperately wants to get a new mask and you have to get a mask created for you by these devil creatures in the series and he's standing in line trying to get one and he wants a cool one so bad and they they just kind of don't give him one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think um I don't think Ebisu's antics annoyed me so much as I think at the beginning the fact that it takes so long to pay off on her character uh maybe mm-hmm. kind of did. Yeah. For 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 a while she was the impetus for the next plot point. She was a lizard sorcerer, the lizard transformation sorcerer. She mm-hmm. she for a while, the series they hinted that maybe the sheep, but the curse on Kaimon. But Spoilers. it took, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think she did, you know, by the end. Mm-hmm. But like, I think that was the implication that maybe she did, and it just it to see kind of that plot point being passed around as like a goofy clown character, uh, you know, not really interacting with uh, uh, Kaimon for a long time between mm-hmm. their first interaction, while we yeah. saw this other stuff was it, it kind of. It kind of graded me a little bit as far as pacing is. I'm a stickler for for very particular pacing, but I think on once I kind of got over that, and I once I recognized the show was just going to take its time with more of these goofy scenes, worried me a little less. I think that's one thing. If we're talking about the show more generally speaking, I think that 
in some ways I could see people getting turned off by the fact that this show does kind of meander a bit. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a strict, like, plot point, plot point, plot point, you know, conflict, resolution sort of thing. It definitely takes a lot of time to do some, like, asides and, like, side moments. I mean, all of these things sort of build to the overall narrative and they all build on characterization. Like, I'm thinking about the baseball episode. I'm thinking about the food truck competition episode, <laughs> which was, which is all just incredible stuff just awesome fun nonsense but it is just it is like fun nonsense and it sometimes does take the show a bit to like get to the point but i think just part of the adventure of dora hidoro is just following these characters in this weird world doing their sort of average day-to-day things and they interact with so many different like kinds of people in this world. It's like we've talked about the main cast, but there's such a plethora of like prominent side characters and like interesting people that they interact with. Like the um like for example, the old men that do that run the baseball team, like they're ridiculous. Um all of the different like servants that N has in his like sorcerer complex are all just like these wacky characters, especially like Turkey, the one whose mask turkey. is just like a turkey, <laughs> like a Thanksgiving turkey uh, on his head. Turkey, yeah. Which I love that. That's some, that's some real great nonsense right there. And then of course, how could we could forget everyone's favorite character, the giant cockroach Johnson? Shocking! Who, if you don't know who we're talking about, he is literally an anthropomorphic cockroach who knows one word, and it is shocking. And he wears he wears high tops. He does. Yes. <laughs> Not to mention the doctor and the other character that even caused Johnson to exist in the first place. So there's just so much going on in Dora Hidoro, and it it sounds probably like from a third person point of view if you haven't seen the show it sounds like there would be so much going on that it would feel alienating or just like kind of you want the story to get to the point but this kind of is the point and i think it goes back into that idea of the theme of you know friendship in this like horrible world and if that's the major thesis statement of the series which i think it is it absolutely nails that 100 percent yeah i think like it basically is just trying to say that no matter your situation, you almost always are going to have a friend and you shouldn't count that for nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like even when the world is falling falling apart and everyone seems like they're going to like hurt you or do bad things to you or out to get you. It's like there are still genuine people in the world who will care about you and will take care of you. So it's important yes. to have that hold on to that hope. Well, you mentioned the meandering style of this show. I think that does sort of tie into my next point, was that this certainly feels like a very 2000s era uh, property. And it makes sense because this started in 2000 and ran through that entire decade. But it's very refreshing to see something that feels, you know, older. It sounds weird to say that. It's it's refreshing for something that's older. To feel older. (laughs) But it, it, it does here. Like, this show could have been on Adult Swim, and I would totally believed it you know, back in the day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Not only in just the visual aesthetic, you know, it's certainly grimy. It's certainly hyper-violent. There's certainly a lot of, like, references to, like, horror stuff and more that aesthetic uh, throughout rather than... There is a zombie episode after all. Yep, Mm -hmm. exactly. I think, uh, doesn't uh, Nikita wear that sort of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre mask at one point? I mean, it was a Jason mask. 
I think a Jason mask shows up. Jason. I don't know if Nikaido's wearing it, but I think it does show up. Right. Well, maybe she does. I can't recall. Yeah. There's just a bunch of iconography like that. It seems like it's like there for, for horror fans almost in some ways. I mean, John Johnson definitely looks like the alien from Alien just as a cockroach. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not only the visual style. It just like it feels like it's something that is episodic in a lot of ways. There is a plot that happens from point A to point B, but it, it almost feels like Cowboy Bebop. You could just turn on a random episode and without knowing what really is happening in the wider plot, just enjoy it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yeah, you know what? I, I was trying to think about what the show really reminds me of, and it might actually be Bebop. Like, mm-hmm. now that you say it out loud, that totally makes sense because you see you have this core of characters who are like lovable goofballs with tragic pasts interacting in this sprawling detailed kind of unjust grimy world yeah and you're just following their adventures and that's basically what cowboy bebop is and that that might be a subconscious reason why i've enjoyed this show so much yeah, exactly. Going into this, uh, like I mentioned my frustration earlier with Ebisu, but going into this, I was expecting there to be... She's uh, Radical Edward! <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no. oh, God, you're right. <laughs> She's <laughs> Radical Edward! So, we cracked the code. So does that mean uh, Kikurage is uh, I'm? I'm. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, but I think like uh, my frustration going in was I, was I was hoping for something more more evenly paced, something that was a little more focused on the, the central plot of the mystery, but it wasn't that. And once I came to terms with that and realized that I was just going to get a you know, happy, fun hangout time with Inn and the boys, uh, it became a much more <laughs> yeah. enjoyable show for sure. And just watching Kaiman just pound those goes down like nobody's business. <laughs> just, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those shows you watch for, you know, you, you basically there to hang out with your friends, whether it be uh, Spike and Jet goofing off on the bebop or whether it's uh, these guys in the sorcerer world planning for a, a parade. So the last thing I wanted to talk about here is you know, we mentioned earlier Tori's uh, certainly read further than us, uh, although it's been a while. Uh, none of us had finished the manga yet, so we don't know. Let's just sort of uh, theory craft here. Where do we see the story going uh, from the end of season one? And I guess this is certainly going to hit spoiler territory for those at home. <laughs> you know, where what, what do we see? Ha- what do we see happening in season two? I don't think Kaiman is ever going to find out who cursed him. <laughs> hmm. It certainly feels like that. Uh, I have I, a, I have a slightly similar theory, but my theory is that he's going to find out who cursed him, but ultimately it's not going to matter, and he's going to eventually realize that it doesn't matter. And that his current life with 
Nikaido and the boys is better than you know him finding out quote unquote the truth of who he is and that's i envision that's going to be like the lesson at the end of the show but again that's just speculation i have no idea how the show ends yeah. but that's mm-hmm. that's that's what i'm thinking there are certainly no spoilers going forward you know technically because we don't know I kind of hope they don't go for something so Disney-like, if I'm being honest. Like, yeah. I can see that for sure. I can see them, you know, the the real friendship is in the Gyoza the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where else do you put friendship? <laughs> yeah, but I kind of, I don't know. Like, I don't I, I don't really care I, personally whether Kaiman goes back or not. Uh, I can see it going either way. I hope that they give, you know, maybe a little more reason for it, uh, if that. Uh, I would like to see more of... Uh, Nikita's past come up. Uh, we've seen that she's an ex sorcerer. We've seen that she knows him and knows her. Uh, there's stuff. I think. Don't the end? Uh, was it? What was it? The um, the demon becomes that chicken headed guy. I think or reverse. So the chicken headed guy becomes Nikita's clone. I think at the end. Yes. Uh, so that could be that could be interesting. Uh, Man, we, I completely forgot that that happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it all it all wraps up really quickly. Mm. Uh, we did hint at a lot more of the cross-eyed gang showing up, and they do mm-hmm. start to dive into Kaiman's past. So I would like to see the cross-eyes become more prominent. I want to find out more about them uh, because we've got the guy in Kaiman's mouth that um, we uh, he he was given a name, but I can't recall it at this moment. He's got Risu. The, Risu, Risu, yeah. I think. Risu. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like we've seen him walk around. He seems to be like it's it's hinting at him being Kaiman, but it's too obvious for me to really believe it. You know? Right. So like I wanna I wanna see more what his deal is for sure and these others. You know, I, I definitely wanna see them stick in the sources world a bit more, uh, and explore more of for that and Nikaido's connection with them. Uh, I think it'd be cool to see you know, ABC and Fujita sort of come into their own, uh, evolve, you know, beyond just being these goofy clown characters and mm-hmm. playing more of a prominent role. Uh, mm-hmm. I did like seeing that one scene near the end where, what is it, like Fujita holds the gun toward the uh, the doctor or something. They ended up deciding not mm-hmm. to shoot each other down for reasons. Uh, but I thought that was a really cool scene. So more of that for sure. Mm-hmm. Give us another baseball episode. Yeah, yes. absolutely. More baseball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, going forward, I kind of just want to see more of the same. Just like keep upping the ante, keep making it more and more interesting and more and more fun and more and more dire. So that's all yeah. I'd like to see going forward, I guess. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You guys have already basically kind of hit the nail on the head. I think that basically from now on, it just needs to keep going up and up and like get to the point essentially like more fun filler episodes are great i love them don't get me wrong but i want to see the story come to a head i want to know what's going on i want to know the things that basically you guys have already said so i'm, I'm not mm-hmm. adding anything new <laughs> I, would, I would like to see one of the characters die at the end of season two yes and see how they react to that in season three. Oh no We've seen a lot of characters die, but like they're not, death is kind of not permanent in this. We've seen a lot of situations where it's not. So like, I would like to see a major like death or something similar happen. Uh, As long as it's not Kikurage. Mm, Yeah. yeah. He's too cute. (laughs) His big old puffy ears and his little mask. Just precious. (laughs) I love the fact, I think it might be uh, Night Running, the ending, where he does the little dance. 
I yes. Yes. I love the little dance. I certainly make Cosmo do that dance. Oh, uh, kikurage is a mushroom. Okay, I thought it was a dessert for some reason, but a kikurage is a mushroom that looks just like his ears, which is what he's named after. Okay. Because oh, N, N was like, oh, his ears look like kikurage. Okay, perfect. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Of course he would yeah. name his dog after a mushroom. That's just his thing. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what inspired me to just look that up right now, but yep. Well, thank you. You've, you've increased the quality of this episode tenfold. <laughs> People will actually learn something. Yeah, you're welcome. For some reason, I was picturing, because, you know, his ears are fluffy, so I was picturing it as this, like, fluffy pastry for some reason, but of course it's a mushroom. <laughs> Go figure. Of mushroom cupcake. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think with that said, we'll transition into the last talking point that we want to deal with for this episode and talk about our most memorable scene from the first season of Dori Hidoro. So Tori, why don't you go first and tell us what your most memorable scene is from this first season? Um, I would say the Nikaido and Kaiman fight scene or anything with Noe and Shin. Very good choice. What about you, yep. Tobias? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I I don't think I get to say the entire baseball episode. Uh, although <laughs> I, I do love this trend of having goofy baseball episodes now. Yes. Uh, that was that being the the high point of Brand New Animal, and this uh, it's just fun. Like it's obvious that the animators are having fun doing this, and it's just like you said earlier, it was just a fun way to see a BCU as a little shark mascot being a, a goofball <laughs> and running around. Speaking of the baseball episode, I wanted to quickly throw this in because I was on the Dory Hidoro fan wiki earlier, so I, I can't verify this for sure. But apparently, the reason why Johnson says shocking is because that's something that Q Hayashida would herself say a lot whenever the um the hashin tigers would do really well in baseball (laughs) so basically johnson is her self-insert character pretty much which is hilarious Mm. to me but that probably also points to you know why there is a baseball episode in the first place because hayashida is probably a big baseball fan if she cares that much about the tigers yeah Yeah. but uh even if we weren't to include that i think one one this scene that stuck out with me was the one where they're they're going to the party where they meet up with Kikurage for the first time. Uh, there's one of those points where the uh, what do you say like the the horror aspect bleed through with these corpses that are hanging from the walls, uh, the ceiling mm-hmm. rather. And you know, there's a there's a lot of goofy action here, and there's a lot of just silly violence that happen, a lot of decapitations and people being cut up. But this is one of those moments where it, it, it actually looks visually shocking to see these corpses hanging around and then giving these mm-hmm. gifts to the sorcerer was mm-hmm. uh, was shocking, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good uh, bait and switch, too, because you thought it was the lady, but all along it was the dog. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I would say if I had to pick one, I'll blame recency bias here because it was in the last episode I watched, but... The most iconic scene for me will be the shot of the little tiny gyoza man in the windowsill <laughs> of the hungry bug. 
Yes. <laughs> just like standing there. The Gyoza Fairy. Yes, the the Excalibur of um, Dora Hidoro, but not nearly as annoying. He doesn't get enough I... attention. <laughs> I hope he. Uh, I hope he returns to give us more, more adventures of the little tiny Gyoza spirit. Yes, uh, I think all the OVA episodes were were fun in their own right, but that was certainly the highlight for me. The Gyoza man, and um. You know, going back to the difference in the visual style, the OVA episode is very interesting because it is a departure from the rest of what the series looks like generally. It's done more like a motion comic, and I th- I thought the designs look a- looked a lot more similar to what they look like in the manga compared to what they looked like in the rest of the show. The animation wasn't nearly as complex or as fluid it was very again sort of like paper dolls yeah but i thought that that was a great little like a little uh, a little a little gimme to the manga fans to like make it look a little bit more like what it looks like in the comics so i thought i thought that was an interesting decision yeah exactly i don't think we like the whole concept of omake is kind of gone by the wayside over the past decade and i would mm-hmm. i'd love to see more one-shot omake kind of stuff it's all been replaced oh, yeah. by nonsense like Guda Guda fairies that you people people like Tobias like. Hey, you need to watch it. It's good. It's pinnacle. It's art. High art. Kino. 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 Well, thank you guys both so much from the bottom of my gyoza-filled heart or my from the bottom of my heart shaped like a mask or my mask shaped like a heart. I don't either way. Thank you guys for joining me to talk about Dora Hidoro. Really appreciate it. Um, and I hope you all listening at home have enjoyed the episode of us talking about Dora Hidoro. This will probably not be the last time we talk about Dora Hidoro because we'll be back to talk about season two whenever that comes back around in, you know, five, ten years or so. Um, but yeah, in closing, this has been another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. My name is Austin. If you'd like to connect with me, you can follow me over on Twitter at BebopShock. You can also find all of our Third Impact anime-related things over on our website, which is thirdimpactanime.com. If you'd like to support the show for a small monthly fee of $1, 3 or $5 per month, depending on what kind of a fan you would like to be, you can support us over on Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash thirdimpactanime. All of the money that we make goes back into the production of the show, and we don't have too many patrons on there, but we would like to extend a very warm thank you to all of the people who support us on a monthly basis over on Patreon. So thank you so much for your support and helping us make these episodes, even if we don't make them nearly as fast as we would want to. So again, our website is thirdimpactanime.com. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash thirdimpactanime. And you can keep up with us over on Twitter at T-I underscore anime. Tobias, where can people connect with you? I am also on Twitter at Reverend underscore Tobias. And Tori, what about yourself? I am also on Twitter at Worst Waifu. Things we learned on today's episode. Q Hayashida watches the Hunchin Tigers. Tobias loves Ikea furniture. And the real Gyoza was the friends we made along the way. The rest is still lost in chaos. That is Dor Hidoro.